So this morning, we're continuing Revelation. We're going to be uh, chapters 12 through 14. Encourage you, to, encourage you to turn on or open up your Bibles. Uh, I'll have uh, chapters 12 and 13 up here, but if I feel so adventurous to jump into 14, I won't have those up there. Uh, so I encourage you to, to, to look along. Um, I'm particularly excited for this week um, because Revelations 12 through 14, uh, some say, is literally the complete center of the apocalypse. Um, the complete understanding of the apocalypse can be found right here. The entire revelation wrapped up in these few chapters. Um, and I believe that it opens our eyes to a world that us Western Christians uh, often uh, ignore in our lives. And that is that all of earth, all of mankind is caught up in a heavenly war between Christ and between Satan that we see play out in our worlds in a day-to-day -day way. Everything that goes on on the news and happens in our lives is part of a much larger picture that extends to heaven and hell. Ultimately, nothing in our lives at its core is natural, but it's supernatural. Your battles with sin your struggles in your marriage, your fears, your, your frustrations, your temptation, your weaknesses. Everything in your life is part of a spiritual war that is being waged in the heavenlies. Like I said, in our rationalism, I feel like us Americans, we virtually ignore the supernatural in our lives. But we desperately need to see it. Because it changes how we live our lives. So that's what I pray will come out of today for each of us, where it needs to come out. So as we jump into Revelation chapter 12, um, and we enter this new part of John's vision, we're going to get a, a, a little bit of a, a history lesson on the world and how this heavenly war rages on. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. Fancy way of saying crowns. So we see in these opening verses of chapter 12, three main characters. And as I walk through them slowly, I want to show you a couple different ways to view everything. And I, and I want to repeat that it's okay to view Revelation in different ways. Because at the end, we ultimately don't know. In fact, there, I'm not going to go into it, but there's really four major ways to view it. The truth is that God has only revealed so much when it comes to the details of Revelation. He's only revealed so many in the details. But I believe he's revealed everything that he needs to reveal in terms of the meaning of Revelation. Everything that he wants us to grab in these visions, to understand who he is, to understand why the world the way it is, and the lives that he is calling us to live. If there was ever a time to use the phrase, 
Don't miss the forest for the trees. Revelations would be that time. A revelation, right? All right, so this first main actor is the woman who is pregnant. Now, this is not a real woman. It's a symbol for the nation of Israel. Throughout Old Testament, you see Israel referred to as a woman time and time again. Uh, Jeremiah does it. Uh, Ezekiel does it. Hosea does it. And in verse 1, it says she's clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, you can look this up on your own, but it's a reference to a dream that Jacob had. The grandson of Abraham, the the very first man that this promise of Christ was made to, which I think we're going to study later this year. You see it all unfold for Jacob in Genesis 37. Now, in verse 2, it says that she was in pain. And if you've ever read the Old Testament, which is all about the nation of Israel, learning and failing and following God, you see the pain and the struggles that they had and their desperate need for a savior. So that's the woman. The dragon obviously refers to anybody? Anybody? The devil, that's right, the devil. Satan, right? And it's not that he's an actual dragon, but it's a symbol of his character. With seven heads and seven diadems and ten horns, right? Which, you know, most likely represent different nations that he has influenced over time. Or different kings he'll influence in the future. In the end, we're not totally sure, but we know that the dragon stands for Satan. Now, verse 4 seems to give us a little background on the dragon. Verse 4, it says, His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. This is one of those times where I thought like a visual image might be nice, and then I Googled it, and I'm like, no, that would not be a good idea. (laughs) Now, what does a third of a stars mean? In my opinion, it's referencing when Satan rebelled against God, right? Somehow he convinced a third of the angels to rebel against God, but were ultimately defeated. We don't really have any more details about any of that than that. Now that he is being defeated, we see him turning his aim to kill this child, and that child is obviously Jesus. So in other words, that Jesus, Satan knew that Jesus would be born out of the nation of Israel, and so he wanted to do everything in his power to destroy Israel. And you see Satan persecute Israel all throughout history. You see, in Egypt, under Pharaoh, tried to destroy Israel. And this is a good point, a good reminder that at some point, I don't remember where in the Bible, Pharaoh is referred to as the serpent. It's a great reminder that beyond all the horrible leaders you see in this world, all the horrible leaders you see in the Old Testament, the real one at work is Satan. They're all just agents of Satan. They're all puppets. And Satan is just their puppet master. And you think of all the worst leaders in the world, what, Lenin and Stalin, Hitler, Mao, pick a name. All his puppets. Hey, quiet down over there, you guys getting carried away. And then when Satan could not find other leaders to do this, what did he do? He tried to rot out Israel from the inside. You'll see several times 
I wrote them down. Leviticus 18, 2 Kings 16, 2 Chronicles 28, Psalm 106, Ezekiel 16. As Israel got into other religions, they got involved in child sacrifice to idols. See this throughout the Old Testament, which is hard for us to even fathom. I think the greatest aid that we can give Satan is to pretend that he's not there. I mean, I would imagine some of the innocent people who live in Ukraine, they look at Putin as this horrible leader, right? The Bible says he's just a putt. Satan is probably just there whispering in his ear, what you have, Putin, is not enough. You got to bring back the old Soviet Union. That land is yours. Just whispering in his ear, pulling his strings to get him do what he wants to do. The thing is, the same enemy that can whisper in the ears of everybody else, all the people you think are evil and bad, that same enemy can whisper in yours too, if we allow him to do so. So many marriages are destroyed. So many people fall away from the Lord. So many people give in to false teaching. Why? Because they listen to the whispers of the enemy. I pray wherever you're getting whispered to, wherever he's pulling your strings, if anywhere, you'd see it. You'd ask the Lord to show it to you. Are you with me, church? Let's move on to verse 5. Now it says, She, Israel, gave birth to a male child, Christ. The one is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has prepared a place, by God, place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now we see Jesus is the one who's going to rule, and Satan can't stop it. It says he was taken up to heaven. Like we read in 2 Peter 2, that God raised him up, speaking of Christ, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. <coughs> now some think that this, <coughs> this wilderness is symbolic, that just like the Israelites were nourished in the desert after they left Egypt, that the believers will be nourished by God spiritually in the time between Christ's resurrection and the time that he finally comes again. They would see this 1,260 days or 42 months or three and a half years, a symbolic time period, just as you do at other parts of the Bible. Now others, they see a time jump. They see a time jump from verse 5 to verse 6. And that verse 6 is now bringing up this end times, uh, considered the great tribulation where Jewish people will have to run and they'll have to hide from the devil's persecution for three and a half years. These are the couple different views of it. We'll find out which is true. Now verse 7. It says, now a war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. 
Verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Now this verse is really interesting. Because in verse 7, it says, John sees a war in heaven. And what's interesting is in this war, Satan is he's given the boot, right? He's been squatting in somebody else's house. He gets the eviction notice. It says there was no place for him there, place for him anymore. Now, what's interesting is after Satan rebelled against God, you still find him having a place in heaven. You read Job. This is how Job starts out. Satan is before God. For some reason, God still allows him to come before him. We don't fully know. I can go into my theories, but we don't have time for that today. Now, some believe that when it says that there was no longer a place, it means that when Jesus died and rose again, at that moment, no longer was there any opportunity for Satan to make an accusation for any follower of God. He could not be like he did with Job anymore and say, look at Job, look, he likes you because you do so much good for him. That all the accusations that he has made, and he's one of the names given for Satan is the accuser, they're gone in that moment when Christ died and rose again. The fact that the judgment of God on human sin, was placed on his sinless son in Christ, has the result, as we read in Romans 8, that there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who faith and trust is in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That no one can bring a charge against the elect, as we read in Romans 8. The idea of the devil has no basis for accusations anymore. And so he's evicted from God's heavenly courtroom that's kind of cool now others believe that this is a war once again that'll take place during the tribulation personally i take the previous approach but once again i don't think it matters for you and i what matters is the meaning that jesus did what no one ever could or ever will do in the pages of human history, he lived a perfect life free from sin, and then he died on the cross to pay the price for sin once and for all. He walked in like somebody who owes a, a financial debt and is in prison for it, and he walks in and he pays it so that may may be set free. And then three days later, he what? We celebrate it a little over a month from now. He rose from the grave. Victory over sin. And death and the devil himself, so that all who believe in him, all entrust in him, will be saved. So when the devil accuses you of being a grievous, grievous sinner, not worthy of God, rather than it sitting on you and weighing you down, you can say, you're right, I'm a great sinner, but I have even a greater Savior. Isn't that good news, church?
Some of y'all need to hear this. Some of y'all need to hear this because you, you found Jesus, but you're still walking. You're still walking like you don't have freedom in his name. Your worth isn't still in how good you are or how bad you've been. Where your worth needs to be in Jesus Christ and who he says you are. Like we sang in that last song, we're no longer slaves because we have been adopted by God into his family when we put our faith and trust in him. We may be great sinners, but we have a greater Savior. And that's good news. Now, verse 12 tells us what happens after this defeat. He says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So Satan's battle plan for the earthly phase of war is brutally simple, to eliminate all those who serve God, or at least to destroy their faith. And and listen, maybe he knows there's no way for him to win, and he don't care. Maybe he's so self-deluded that he still thinks there's a way for him to win. I don't know, but it doesn't change his battle plan to eliminate those who serve God. If you sit here today, if you are a Christian, if your faith is really in Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, his plan is to destroy you and your faith by any means possible. Verse 13 And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And verse 17, and then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So in the Old Testament, a lot of imagery here, and you're like, what is this? You see flood often used, and the Bible loves to use imagery, and it's, it's used on several occasions to speak of an army that's going out to conquer. You see this, uh, I wrote this down in Daniel, you see it in 2 Samuel, in Isaiah, and in the Psalms. And so just as the devil deceived the first woman with her words and tried to bring people against her to crush her, Israel, so he continued to do after Christ was died and rose again and continues to do today. And so some believe that this is symbolic, that those who follow Christ, that be you, that be me, that we're wandering on this earth, our wilderness, before we get to our true home, which is heaven. And this this echoes back to the Israelites. What did they do after they got freed from Egypt? They wandered in the, anybody? 
right, in the, del- in the desert, in the wilderness for 40 years before they got to their promised land. And that entire time, God nourished them, no matter how much they whined and complained. It, it, it harkens back to Isaiah 40, where he says, but those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. Like we read in Revelation, they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Amen, church. Now, the other main view of this passage is that during the time of great tribulation, the last seven years of the world, that Satan will go after uh, those who believe in the nation of Israel, and, and then they're going to flee out to a real wilderness for their survival. You know, and I, though I more take to the symbolic approach and you know, and, and sometimes I think with Revelation, it doesn't be one view or another. It can be both views. We have no idea. Or another view we haven't even considered. But it feels like this could easily happen because, like, Israel is always in a state of conflict. Always. They seem to always be the center of conflict in the, in the world. There's always something going on. It's like so much more. You're like, some extra has got to be going on here. Either way, though, the meaning stays the same. Satan can no longer touch God, so he's going to go after the people of God. And like I said, some of you need to hear this this morning because you're living life as if the enemy would not come after you. You are not in God, are in God, are in guard in your life against temptation, against false teaching. Right? You're, you're, you're not surrounding yourself with the armor of God that we read in Ephesians 6. You're just going through the motions every day like it's peacetime. Imagine Ukraine right now, if they never brought out their military to fight off Russia. If they, never, if, they, if they just kept pretending that there was no war, they'd get ran over. The same happens in our Christian lives when we pretend it's peacetime and that there is no enemy coming after us, coming after our marriages, coming after our families, coming after our children. And this is something I would wish I would have realized when I was even a teenager in school that the enemy was coming after me. I mean, we see, man, Daniel. Read Daniel. Remember we did this series back in 2017? He was like 14 or 15 when he did these great things for God. I wish I would have been woken up to the fact that the enemy is out there and coming after us. We need to start living like it. Are you with me, church? All right, now we're going to jump from Revelation 12 to 13. All right. Verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems or crowns on its horns, and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So if you've been a Christian at all, and even if you haven't, you've heard of the phrase, the Antichrist, right? And this is who John seems to, John seems to be referring to here. And there's, and there's all this kind of speculation of, of, of who or what this beast is. I, I think first century Christians, they would have read this and they would almost identified this like this is the Roman Empire. Because the Roman Empire did not love Christianity. And, and, and the state was mandating worship of the Roman emperor. And so they might have thought, man, the Roman empire or even like the, you know, like 
uh, Nero himself as the emperor, like, oh, this is the Antichrist. And, and many, I think, first seven, first seven, I was always taught this, always growing up, that we associate this beast with this person, the Antichrist, right? Um, and, and you see it in John's letters other, in other places. You see it, Paul talking about him in Thessalonian, that it's a, a man of lawlessness, a son of destruction. He's going to exalt himself. He's going to take a seat of worship in the temple. He's going to proclaim himself to be God. And so they equate this beast and this man of lawlessness is the Antichrist, and he's coming in the end times. Another view is that they don't limit this idea of this Antichrist or this beast to any one particular person. But it is a symbolic view of all governments and leaders who oppose and persecute God's people that the devil will use as his puppets, as we talked about, to lead people astray. And I, and I can't help to think about the different various governments in history and around the world who have done this. You know, and, and listen, I'm, I think some people get a little too panicked, like that every Christian's going to get locked up in jail in the next five years. And, but, I, and, and I'm not down that train. Um, I don't think that's where our focus should be. But you look at certain signs, and I think, you know, in the next two generations, maybe three at most, you could see our country very easily move this direction. So I kind of lean towards this interpretation that throughout history and, and the rest of our future until Christ's return, that they're going to continue to be governments and leaders and systems and structures that the devil is going to use to deceive the church, to oppress the church. Now, it doesn't necessarily uh, rule out that there will be some type of leader that comes in the end times, man of lawlessness, if you will, could still happen. Don't know. We'll find out. But once again, the important part is the meaning. That, government, that Satan is doing whatever he can to work through whoever he can destroy the work of the Lord. Verse 3, it says, One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound. But its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? So some believe, and if you've ever seen end-time movies, you'll see this, that this Antichrist, like someone's going to like try to assassinate him, but he won't die, or that he's going to fake like someone trying to assassinate him, and they're going to say, wow, he rose from the dead, so everybody will follow him, right? That's one of the views that they have. Another view is that this wound that they're talking about is when Christ died and rose again, because it was a mortal wound. When Christ died and rose again, every, all the power that Satan had was gone. It was gone. He was, Satan became a dead man walking. It was a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 3, when God said to the serpent, that I that your off that between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This was actually speaking to Adam and talking about the serpent, that this was Christ who was coming. And and why it said and, and it says though that this wound seemed to be healed, and that's the idea that even though this death blow has been given to Satan, is it doesn't look like it. Like when you walk around this world and you watch the news. I mean, it doesn't look like the devil is defeated, does it? 
It doesn't. Somebody once likened this to like D-Day in World War II for you history buffs. That like after the Allied forces approached the beach, they put the German forces on their heels. It was the turning point of the war. The death blow had been pretty much given, but this still took time to play everything out. The same here. Now, I'm going to just jump through, and I'm going to summarize. Verses 5 through 8. It's going to talk about how he is given authority to make war on the saints, the people on earth who will worship him. And here's what it says in verse 9. It says, if anyone who has an ear, let him hear, that if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is going to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So Satan through this beast, through this antichrist, is going to cause Christians to suffer. And God's going to allow it. He's going to allow it. And during that time, they are to depend on God's providence whether it means in the end times or talks about all Christians. And I think this is important for us because, man, especially in the last 10 years, I get this, this, this there seems to be this rise out of some Christians. Uh, and, I, and, and to be honest, they're Christians who get more passionate about their politics than they do about the gospel, that we got to fight against everything. We got to stand up and we got to battle. And I'm not going to get into all the details of this, but I think what we have to remember is that the proclamation of the gospel comes first and foremost. And that when we lower ourselves to the standards of those who serve the world, we do disjustice to the name of Jesus, whether it's in our conversations, in our social media posts, or the way that we go about politics, or, or any place where we suffer. Somehow, us as Americans, we have it so good, like American Christians sometimes feel like we shouldn't have to suffer. Suffering is bad. It is a huge detriment here in the West. God is a God of love and wouldn't allow us to suffer. There's nothing in the Bible that shows us that. In fact, sometimes it is by our suffering that the gospel gets best proclaimed. You don't believe me? Read about the church of Philadelphia. He says, every door has been shut in your face. Faith, you have suffered, but I'm going to open doors for you. God is going to call you to suffer sometimes. And he said, you better accept it, welcome it, be like the disciples and the apostles in, in Acts 5.41, that when they left the council and they got done got being beat and imprisoned, they rejoiced because they suffered dishonor for the name of Jesus. You still with me, church? Now, what goes on to say, I'm going to paraphrase it, is there is a second beast that arise, and it, we know it as the, the false prophet, and some believe that it's this religious leader that will show up in, in the end times, and it'll make the Antichrist look even more real, and be like, oh, worship him, he's God, right? Uh, others believe that it is symbolic for false religion and false teaching throughout all of history. 
And you can see that because there's a lot of false teaching out there today. And Christians get led astray by it. World gets led astray by it. Once again, even if it means that, it doesn't mean that there's not this false prophet, the second beast that comes at the end of time. But the meaning, once again, is the same. We must be careful not to compromise the name of Jesus. We must be careful not to be led astray. And no matter what the cost, the rest of Revelation 13, it goes into the, the mark of the beast that we were, we were taught growing up that one day you can only buy food or stuff if you have this mark on your head, the 666 number, or on your hand, which some think are going to be a real thing. Some also believe that it's symbolic of a heart nature because like earlier in Revelation, you see uh, Christians, you see them sealed that a mark is put on their forehead, which is most likely spiritual. And so here in the same way, it's spiritual. And to be honest, when you think about it, a real Christian is not going to hide who they are. So there may become a time where, like we've seen recently in lesser ways, where people get canceled if they are Christians. You don't need a mark on your wrist or your head to have that happen. I'm not saying it can happen, but I think we also have to realize a lot of times we believe things are going to happen because we're always told that, not because we necessarily study the scriptures for ourselves. The same with this number 666, all of this work that's been done in, in, in history to figure out who it is, and it's Hitler, it's this, it's that, it's that, and if you work the numbers and letters and people's names in certain languages, you can come up with pretty much everybody for this. But it's not even necessarily 666 is the number of 666, but it's just six three times, six being the number of man, three sixes being a, a, uh, a false attempt at the Trinity. That it's a completeness of heart and mind to follow the world, to follow Satan, and not necessarily a numerical number that you're going to find somewhere. It could be, but once again, we don't need a numerical number to see those who follow Christ and those who don't. We don't have that today. We see people who are canceled today. You get canceled in your school, you're not as popular, you get canceled in your job by not getting a promotion or a pay raise, you're less popular in your social circles because you stand for Christ. You don't need a mark for that. It can be just a condition of your heart and your mindset. So church, as we live our end times, whether it's the end times of the earth or most likely the end times of however many years we get until we kick the bucket, we must remember that our call is to stay true to the gospel no matter what the cost, to not be compromised by false teaching, to diligently study God's word, to live as if there is a battle going on that we cannot see, to live knowing that there is an enemy because it changes everything, even in little things. I, I always tell you, the greatest threat to the church is disunity in the church, greatest threat. And when we're not aware to it, it'll destroy our relationships. It destroys our marriages. I can't believe he said that to me or she said that to me. I can't believe they decided to do that. And the, and the enemy will fan these flames in our hearts. And because we're not aware of the enemy at work, we just blame other people. And it creates this division and unforgiveness and bitterness and can destroy the gospel. And that's just one example of so many ways where we can just 
be swayed by the devil. Church, we must live as if we are at war because we are. The battle's been won. The war's been won. But we're still in it until the day the Lord has called us home. And even if it means calling us to suffer for his name, we say, devil, do the worst. Because we know, and, and, and Revelation 14 is all about this, that the suffering here is minimal. It's for a short time. But that God's eternal reward in heaven waits for those who call upon his name, who keep their eyes upon him in faith. Psalm 37 says, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them, and he delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. May that be said of us. Amen, church?